we, we have a tendency to misuse things. I'm just going to jump right in here, guys. Sorry. I, you guys were expecting a prayer there. Uh, I am going to pray here in just a second, but we have a, I just wanted to share a quick story before I did. So we have a tendency to misuse things. My daughters, two and four, uh, like the pillow fort, there's such a hope that the pillow on top would also be a bridge, and they find out really quickly that it doesn't hold their weight. Everything is a slide in their minds. Everything is a ladder in their minds. Uh, and often, through many bumps and bruises, they're finding out that these things do not work for what they want them to work for. We do this throughout our lives. We do this with marriage. We try to make our marriages be all satisfying for us, uh, that they would provide for us the meaning and purpose of our lives, that I would feel happy and satisfied, and we would blame our spouse when that doesn't happen. As parents, we believe that having children will finally complete us. We're using these things, these events in our lives, once I get this job, all of these things are, are meant to make our lives better and to give us satisfaction in our lives, but uh, we're trying to extract something that it was not intended for. This is not what God designed marriage for. This is not what God gave us to be parents of our children for. We have a tendency to misuse things. The American, the Western church, is shrinking. And I believe we're being confronted that there are a number of people who are confused about what church is for, that maybe even what Jesus is for. And when we come to him expecting our lives uh, to be better or in some way our lives will be improved, uh, we find ourselves at some point disappointed. I believe this passage, this passage speaks to that. A good story has a, a, a scene or a setting, some characters, some conflict, and resolution. I think all of those things are here in this passage, uh, and I've got so many things that I want to point out and share with you, but I need God's help. Uh, so will you pray with me now uh, as, as we pray over this passage? Jesus, you are here your Holy Spirit is here. It's better that your Spirit is here with us than it is with your, than your own physical presence. As, as hard as it is for us to understand that, you've said that it's true, that it's better that we have your Spirit. So God, we need your Spirit to um, help to illuminate the words that are on these pages in our Bibles, uh, this event that actually took place, and that you would soften our hearts to receive this message, that our lives would be changed as a result, because that's what your, your word does by the power of your spirit. Father, we thank you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the arrest of Jesus the betrayal of Jesus. He's put on a false trial, a phony trial. Uh, he is uh, declared guilty by the Sanhedrin, 
Though they have no power to enact capital punishment, they submit Jesus to Pilate. Pilate says, hey, he kind of uh, shirks responsibility. Is that the word? I don't know. Uh, Shirk, yeah. Uh, Takes that responsibility and hands it off to, uh, to Herod. It's like, oh, Herod, this is your jurisdiction. You should handle this. And Herod, uh, like, has this interaction with Jesus, sends him back to Pilate, so everybody's kind of abdicating their responsibilities. Pilate, it says, uh, if you look at the first couple verses of this passage, chapter, or verse 13 in chapter 23 of Luke, it says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserves death. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. The characters of this this scene here. Uh, are Pilate and Herod, kind of the political leaders of the day. There's the, the Sanhedrin, the kind of religious and social leaders of the day. There's Barabbas, which will be introduced here in just a second. There's Jesus. Pilate is somebody who is having to manage the crowds, He's having to maintain uh, order. He is the Roman rule, the representation. The Sanhedrin, they have their, their reasons for killing Jesus, and their, the, their uh, accusation of Jesus is that he has called himself king. And so what, he's, what they say to Pilate is the reason that Pilate needs to kill him is because he is claiming to be king and only Caesar is king, and so this is uh, treason, uh, punishment of death. But see, Pilate interviews him, talks to him, and finds that he's not guilty of these things, not in the way that the Sanhedrin had described. In fact, uh, in, in John we get a little bit more of an understanding of some of the private conversations that Pilate had with Jesus. Pilate's wife says, hey, I had a dream about this, uh, and I'm being tortured about this. This guy is not something you want to have on your hands. Pilate, you need to get this off of your hands. And, 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 And so Pilate when he brings them in front of the Sanhedrin, in, in John it tells us, he's claiming to be the son of God. See, that was not in the original accusations, right? He's claiming to be the son of God. That's, that's the actual religious crime. That's not a problem for Rome. That's a problem for the Sanhedrin, right? So now they're adding an additional charge, and the, the result for Pilate at that point is fear, it says in John. He's like, what? He's claiming to be the son of God? So in John, it says he goes in and he has this private meeting with Jesus and he says, tell me who you are. They're saying you're son of God. If you're son of God, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Are you saying you're the son of God? 
Jesus doesn't answer him. Pilate says, I'll, I'll read it, uh, verse 10 of uh, John 19, I think it is. Uh, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. I want to be careful anytime that I talk about the things that happen and who contributed to the crucifixion of Jesus. Because the reality is all of it was ordained by God, wasn't it? God put together everything that needed to happen in order for Jesus to be killed. There are those historically who have tried to blame certain people groups because of Jesus' death and have even tried to avenge that, acted hatefully, and, and it was God who put it all together. In fact, even in this moment, Pilate misunderstanding what authority is for or what authority looks like. The only authority he's known is uh, kind of a coercion or forcing or a use of power or control in order to get uh, subjection of his people. See, Jesus is demonstrating a new kind of authority that says, I'm going to change you from the inside out, that your desires will change and that you will actually desire obedience, that you will not be forced into or coerced into obedience. He's redefining what leadership or what authority is. And Jesus says to Pilate, you don't even have authority unless my Father in heaven even gave you that authority. So Jesus is reminding us that he had all authority in that moment, but he's willingly subjecting himself now, there's also Barabbas. This is, this is introduced in, uh, in verse uh, 18, I want to say, and, and uh, in 18 it says, but they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. Now, the Luke account kind of brings that out of nowhere, Right? Because Barabbas, what, what, why, why is that even on the table? For those of you who have read the other Gospels, Pilate's idea of kind of washing his hands of this whole situation was to present, as was custom at Passover, a choice. Typically, they would release a prisoner. It was just kind of a custom. It wasn't written anywhere, but it was, it was a custom that they would take a prisoner and they would pardon him. They'd release a prisoner. And so Pilate had this idea that he was going to bring out kind of the worst guy that he could possibly think of because the reality was Pilate was scared to have the blood of Jesus on his hands and did not want to have the blood of Jesus on his hands. So he put forward the worst possible option compared to Jesus, somebody who actually, in front of everyone, did all the things that Jesus is being accused of, an insurrectionist and a murderer, basically leading a takeover uh, of an overthrow of government uh, and, and, and murder in the process. He is certainly condemned to die. Uh, this, is, this would have been a potentially hated prisoner next to Jesus. 
and they give them a choice. Would you rather have Barabbas released or Jesus? And they said Barabbas. The one who actually did it, Barabbas, or the one who is actually innocent, they chose the guilty. Pilate, uh, in verse 20, it says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore, therefore punish and release him. Pilate is resolved. He's principled. There's nothing, that, there's nothing that's been done wrong here. He's innocent. I'm going to release him, right? Time served. He's already been beaten, mocked, tortured, abused. But the crowd increases in their intensity. Pilate caves. In verse 23, it says, But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries, that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided at their demand, that their demand should be granted. He caved. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. It is helpful for us to insert ourselves into the story. If you're in one of our uh, groups that meet throughout the week, one of the questions that we ask is, is who am I in this story? And it's not always to replace yourself with one of the characters, but if there's something to be learned, we kind of have to see ourselves as a character. We have a tendency of putting ourselves as the main character. We'll read about David and we'll say, oh yeah, well, I'm David and I'm being you know, persecuted and, and things like that. Sometimes that's helpful, but often... We, we make a mistake about who we really are in this story. You see, some of us are Pilate uh, in this story. Uh, we'll do what's right unless we're in the pressure of a situation. Uh, and the majority is against us. Uh, we'll cave. And we'll go against our principles out of a fear for what the consequence might be. Believe it or not, some of us are the Sanhedrin who would place, in our, place ourselves in a position above Jesus, telling him about what he should be uh, and what place he should have in our lives. The easy one to connect ourselves to here is Barabbas, Right? The easy one is Barabbas because the reality is if you have an awareness of, of your own sin, uh, you, you recognize in this moment Barabbas knew that his punishment was going to be death. And he's sitting there and he's watching this thing unfold. And this guy Jesus is taking, taking his punishment. And he cannot believe his ears. He cannot believe his eyes. 
When Pilate says, yeah, Barabbas, you go ahead and go. And he, he looks back. Maybe he looks back. Maybe he doesn't. And this, this guy is now going to be killed for something I did, even though he didn't do anything at all, right? So that's like, that's like the easy obvious, right? We're definitely Barabbas, especially in that place where we can see and appreciate what Jesus has done for us, understanding our position. But I want to introduce another character, something that stood out to me, okay? The crowd. The crowd. Now, I understand why the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus dead. I understand why the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. But the crowd? Nowhere else did we see, uh, prior to this point, a crowd opposed to Jesus. A couple of situations when he took the pigs and took them off of the edge of the cliff. They were a little upset at him for that. Uh, but remember that Jesus was, uh, was arrested at night. Why? Because they were afraid of the crowd. Right? The Sanhedrin at that point was afraid that the crowd was with Jesus. So if, if, if Jesus is arrested at night, then, then they'll avoid a riot because they needed to do it in secret because they feared the crowd. But here we are the next day, and the very crowd that was feared to be in support of Jesus is now yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The same crowd that a week earlier was saying, Hosanna, the King of the Lord. The same crowd who was served bread and fish. The same crowd that would have seen cousins and brothers being healed. What happened? This got me down a line of thinking, like, you read ahead, Luke continues the story. This is kind of just one part of the story. He, he, he continues in the book of Acts. Acts is volume two, okay? Luke is volume one, the things of, that Jesus did, and Acts, the thing that the disciples did in reaction to that, the Acts of the Apostles. At... at at, G at Jesus' ascension, it says there were 120. Jesus had 120 with him. All that he did, feeding 5,000, which is actually 15,000 if, if you counted everybody that was there, on maybe a, a, a couple of different occasions. Crowds, whole towns pushing in to see him, to be healed by him. The whole streets of Jerusalem laying down palms and, and coats, welcoming Jesus. Certainly he would have had a huge following. The book of Acts says 120. Only 120? What happened? Historians say that there were about 12 million Jews, and so I, I didn't check the math on this. That's one in 30,000 we're Christians, from, from Jesus, God in the flesh, being here. I'm reminded 
of a scary truth in the book of, of Matthew chapter 7 where, where, where Jesus said that people are going to come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do mighty works in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. So here's the scary thing for me. And this is actually kind of an uncomfortable message for me to teach. Because I'm, I'm in the counseling ministry. Uh, a lot of what I like to do is, is, is help and provide comfort. Uh, but speaking the truth in love is certainly a part of that. That's a scary thing. That's a scary thing to think that there might be uh, people who are here who believe they're following Jesus, but as soon as something turns, as soon as something in their life doesn't work the way that they want it to, they'll be in the crowd saying, crucify him. Angry at God. I was having a conversation with uh, Liz Mangles. She's our uh, communications director, uh, and she just does a, an incredible job, keeps the website up to date and sends out all the um, app alerts and all of those things, the weekly emails. And uh, I love uh, talking with Liz and her husband, Kevin, because they're new Christians. Uh, I think they've only been Christians like maybe three or four years, just bought their first Bible recently. And so all that they've known, they, they, they haven't ever experienced kind of a, a, a cultural, casual Christianity. Like all they know is their lives have been reoriented around Jesus, around the gospel. They've uh, sold their home and have, have talked about what they might do, what, what radical next step that they might make. He might give up his, his very great job and consideration of pursuing full-time ministry, some, some radical, costly things. And I love talking to them because they, they haven't experienced that, that casual cultural Christianity that so many of us have grown up in. And I asked her, I said, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of our practice as the executive pastor. I'm checking in with all of the other uh, leaders in various ministries, and I ask her, and I say, what, what, do you, what do you see that people are, are needing? What do you feel like is missing here at our church? And she says, as, as, as she's kind of like working out what it means to be leading in ministry, she says, I, I find it frustrating when I see Christians that seem like they're asleep. They seem completely unaffected by the truth of the gospel. They don't seem to get excited about things that they're reading. They don't seem to understand the, the, the calling on their life to be on mission and sharing the good news of the gospel. They seem so casual. And it's, it's, it's something that, that she, she prays for and she tries uh, in, in, in kind of trying to convince somebody to wake up. You know the book of Romans? 
in, in uh, chapter 3, it calls us enemies of God. And in Romans 5, it even goes, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 8, it goes further and says that we have en- enmity with God. We, we have hatred or hostility towards God. That is in the flesh until God changes our heart. Now, you might be saying, like, I, I'm not sure how I resonate with that. How is it? I don't, I don't hate God. I'm, 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 I'm totally fine with God, right? Uh, you know, who here believes in God? Everybody raises their hand. But what about when God is not how you want him to be? What, what we do is we say, my God loves everybody, welcomes welcomes anybody, is gracious towards anyone. Uh, Our God is loving and gracious, but when it comes to parts of the Bible what talk about God's judgment or his wrath, yeah, that's that's not all right with me. They, uh, they, they, They love God uh, they, they, have to, they have to shape we. Let's just say we. I have to shape God into what I'd like him to be. The God I love wouldn't do that. And the fact that we even have to change God in any way, if, if we're preferring that he's any different than what he says he is in the Bible... The fact that we have to change him points something out, that we have a natural hatred. We have a natural hatred for anything that threatens our self-sovereignty, which means I am the master of my ship, right? I want to be in charge. The fact that we have to modify God from the God of the Bible says that I don't want a God that can't be mastered. If you're still not resonating, there's a religious version of this too. The religious version of this is uh, I do good things, I follow God's rules, I accept God as he is, and he blesses me. Good things will happen because I'm doing good things. What about when that doesn't happen? What does that reveal when we get angry? I've been there. Things have not worked out for me sometimes, and I get angry at God. Why? Why am I angry at God? I'm angry because I had a mindset that said, as long as I do what He tells me to do, what I believe that the Bible says, then things should work out good for me in my life. That's another way that we try to master God. We try to control God. We don't want a God that we can't master. We want a God that we can chain up, take to the cross, crucify. People were not ever indifferent to Jesus. They they were either uh, afraid of him, said, "I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. They were angry at him. Uh, and hated him, 
or they did the most radical thing. They submitted to him. They surrendered to him. They let him rule in their lives. They radically reoriented their life. Everything they thought they knew and understood, everything that they were about before, they were fishermen and then they were fishers of men. They were tax collectors and then they were a disciple of Jesus. Their lives were radically reoriented. No one was indifferent. So the question here, the reality, how did the crowd turn? They, they went to Jesus to see how they, he could make their lives better. And he did. Jesus made their lives better. He turned water into wine, multiplied bread. He fed them. He healed them. So yeah, he had a lot of followers, but they understood what Jesus was for. They misunderstood what Jesus was for. They misunderstood what he was there to do. Because as soon as it came time to reorient their lives, that something had to change in their lives, that following Jesus as their leader is being put on trial and potentially facing certain death, a crucifixion, I'm out. I don't want any part of that. I was, I was here for the fish. Yeah. So, but we do that too, don't we? We do that. Man, I'm going go to I'm gonna start going to church, find a good Christian girl, right? When I'm young, you know, before I was married. I'm going to make friends at church. I'm going to find morality at church. I'm going to find a place that's got a good children's ministry and music that's not too loud and not too quiet. I'm going to make business relationships at church. I'm going to go to church when I feel sad and I'm going to leave happier. We might misunderstand what church is for. We might misunderstand what Jesus is for. Mark Sayer, uh, in his podcast a couple weeks ago, said that there is an increasing gap between believing and, and obedience that, that we, 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 we have the solace, we want the solace of belief without having to change anything in our lives. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a message we've kind of preached in the church culturally, I'm not saying it outward church, but culturally, that says, as long as you believe this, this, and this, then you're saved. And while it's true, we say that it is only by our faith that we are saved. James is quick to point out that faith without works is dead. Faith without radical reorientation isn't real faith. Faith without a change 
is not real faith. So I would offer that we're the crowd. Most often we're the crowd. We will often be pointed out usually through our anger and our frustration uh, that, that we were wanting something that we're not getting. Something is, is outside of our control that we, were, that we thought should be in our control. At Outward Church, we say that our mission statement is to create disciples who love Jesus and live outward. It's in our, it's in our name, right? Outward is, is, that should be the orientation of our lives, the orientation of our hearts. And so while I might be giving kind of a, a message that's contrary to the saved by our faith, come as you are, while true as that is, there is a confrontation that each of us have to face when it comes time to, are you willing to live like Jesus? Or are you here just for the benefits? Love Jesus, live outward gives us our our focus, because we could get that out of, you could hear this message and you could get it out of order. You could leave here and say, I need to be more outward. I need to be sharing the gospel with my neighbor. I need to be uh, serving more at the church. I need to give more and I need, to, I need to do more. There's a reason we say love Jesus, live outward in that order, because it has to start with a recognition that you were Barabbas and Jesus took your place. Willingly, he'd, he'd, he'd do it again. He'd do it a thousand times over. Willingly, knowing he didn't do any of those things, that you had done all of those things, he took your place. That as we learn more and more about who Jesus is, we say that loving Jesus is loving his, his story, which is the story of the gospel, the story of who he is and what he's done for us. Loving his people, gathering here together, those who are with us believing already and those who are not yet believing, we love them too. And we love his rule, submitting to him. And when we get that part right, what happens in us? We start living outward. Out of our love for Jesus and for his people, his story and his rule, we start giving our talent, our time, our resource. We start serving. We start speaking. Paul says, I believe, therefore I speak. It starts with an acknowledgement that we're the crowd. I may, I may have some confusion about what church is for. I may have some confusion about what Jesus is for. I may have some confusion about what salvation is for. You know, you weren't, 
we might have come to Jesus to avoid hell. But he actually saved you because he's got a mission for you. Every single one of us are ministers. Every single one of us priests. Every single one of us has a mission. Saved for a purpose. I'm going to leave it there. We're going to celebrate uh, communion now. This is a reminder. We have a, a, a moment to just put ourselves in Barabbas' place. And as we take the bread and the juice, we can consider that Jesus, Jesus took it. So right where you are, I'm going to invite you to stand up, come and grab a cracker and a juice, return to your seats. This can be a time of repentance. This should be a time of repentance. Let's ask God to reveal where, where I might have misunderstood what Jesus is for. Time that I've, I've, I've tried to use church for, the, for, for, for not what it's been designed for or intended. Ask God to show you those things so that we can confess, we can repent, and forgiveness is waiting for you. The work of Jesus on the cross was, was total, was complete, it was for all sin, past, present, and future. You can be praying right now on your own, asking, asking God to reveal where you have misunderstood what the church is for, what Jesus is for, what your marriage is for. That God would replace that with the truth of His design. And forgiveness is waiting for you. His body was broken. We're going to take the cracker together. Go ahead and take that now. That's his body that was broken willingly for you. The juice which represents his blood, we'll take that now. Blood covers all of our sin. Let's pray now. Jesus, we crucified you. And we confess that when you don't behave in the way we want you to, we crucify you in our hearts over and over again. God, we want a God that we can master and be in control of. And you knew that we had that problem just like the crowd did. And you died because in our flesh we're enemies and we hate you, but 
you've given us new life. Through your spirit, you've changed our hearts. You're changing our desires. Our, our flesh is being put to death. God, we, we thank you for saving us, for going to the cross when we were still enemies and saving us when we just wanted you dead. God, we worship you now for what you've done. Amen.